afternoon. Thank you for coming. Uh, this session is the who, what, and how of tapping into new scholarship for your site or exhibit. And I am John Dictel with the National Council on Public History. We organize this session, we're sponsoring this session, and this session is being recorded. So when we get to questions and comments from you guys, which we really hope to get to very quickly, there is a microphone somewhere in the back that our blue-shirted volunteer will be passing around. Um, so what we're doing with this session is we're, we're going to try and each speak relatively briefly. Uh, we'll have multiple opportunities to come back to our comments. We wanted to get you guys involved very quickly. Um, and this session is somewhat of an experiment in another way in that uh, the National Council on Public History and I hope possibly the ASLH together um, can start figuring out this question, this core question of how do you get uh, the scholarship into historic sites and get scholars involved in historic sites and get uh, people working in historical institutions and sites uh, feeling that they have more access to and involvement in um, universities and colleges and uh, you know, that there's just more moving back and forth across those lines that we perceive. Um, I've been very self-conscious in the last couple of days thinking about this session, um, not wanting to reinforce the dichotomy of scholars over here and people working um, at historic sites and institutions over here because people certainly move back and forth. And my definition of scholarship is very broad. Um, in this session, we're sort of using it in a shorthanded way, which puts it over here, maybe uh, coming out of the academy, um, um, or in a published form, but I want you to know that personally, I, I believe scholarship um, exists across the spectrum. Um, so maybe we can talk about that as we go along. So let me, so I've introduced myself. I'm John Dictal with the National Council on Public History, an organization I hope you all will consider joining or coming to our conferences. Um, with us today are three speakers. Uh, the order they'll be speaking is Mary Rizzo first, right here. Mary Rizzo is the public historian in residence at Rutgers University Camden's Mid-Atlantic Regional Center for the Humanities. For the past year, she has also been the co-editor of the NCPH journal, The Public Historian. Her special charge at the journal, is somewhat related to the session, is to connect it with the work of history practitioners. Prior to her current positions, uh, she worked at the, I always get the name slightly wrong, because all the humanity councils have slightly different named. Um, she worked at the New Jersey Council for the Humanities. Uh, her first book will be out next year from the University of Nevada Press, and it's Class Acts, Young Men and the Rise of Lifestyle. Our second speaker is Cassie Ward on the end. Uh, she is the Director of Public Programs at Long Branch, a 200-year-old plantation home historic site in Virginia, a little over an hour from Washington, D.C., it's a site she'll talk about this afternoon as she explains how the staff there researched, began researching the full history of the site of Long Branch as part of a new strategic plan. Uh, she was a project manager for the National Park Service before that for several years and received her master's in public history at American University. And then our third speaker is Kathy Stanton, sitting in the middle. She's a writer, anthropologist, and public historian, is a senior lecturer at Tufts University in Boston. She's also the digital media editor for the National Council on Public History and the creator of our Public History Commons and our History at Work blog, which I encourage all of you to go look at if you haven't seen. Uh, Kathy has been a consultant on many ethnographic projects for the National Park Service, and her book about Lowell National Historical Park 
the Lowell Experiment, Public History in a Post-Industrial City, won the 2007 NCPH Book Award. Um, so Cassie will be talking about Long Branch as sort of a case example, case study, um, really getting into the, the details of, of how you bring new scholarship into a historic site. Uh, Mary will talk about a public history boot camp that she organized last fall in New Jersey that was about uh, working with smaller uh, historical sites, um, um, talking about the new scholarship on immigration and diversity. And then Kathy will be talking about farming, the local food movement, and ways that historic sites are partnering with scholars and public historians for better interpretation and new avenues for civic action. Now, before we get to their comments, which we're going to try and keep to about five or ten minutes each, we wanted to brainstorm with all of you, um, there's a lot of experience in this room, about specifically challenges that come about in trying to build these bridges between with, uh, with scholars, with universities, with colleges, or simply doing the research challenges with bringing new scholarship into historic sites. So we're starting with the questions and answers first. We'll get back to them in the middle and at the end as well. Uh, it, does anyone have an example of a challenge? We're going to sort of leave the, the good stuff, you know, good examples of where it's worked well for later. But what are some problems? I think I laid one out, this perception of a, of a divide with people on one side or the other. And perhaps um, if you're on one side, um, there might be some trepidation and working with people from the other side. I think people in colleges and universities often have no idea what's done in museums or historic sites or historical societies. And that's something that NCPH wrestles with all the time and ASLH does as well. But are there any examples out there of where you've worked at your site of trying to bring a new scholarship in? Yes. panel. <laughs> new research, new published work, you know, stuff that's in the, the scholarly literature, whether it's journals or, or monographs. Or... So it's new interpretation. Yeah, and, and what's, what's coming out of the, particularly the, you know, in this case, the historical mm -hmm. discipline that might be relevant at historic sites. And then first and then second. Sometimes it's just the immensity of the literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you get a, I think I did an exhibit on immigration, mm -hmm. picking up the, the new literature, even the old literature <laughs> is big, and the new literature goes off in so many different directions, you know, practically any major historical topic. Mm -hmm. so. Chicago manual style 
Sure. Sure. And is the sound okay, or do you need a microphone going around? You need me to talk into the microphone? <laughs> okay. Do you have the microphone? Or you want this microphone? Yeah. Okay. Are, are there any more? Oh, two more. At least three more. Green shirt. Green shirt. Oh, her. Yes. I have like a couple all at the same time. <laughs> One is somebody already said time. The other is getting um, the institution I work for, a local government, to understand the importance of that. Um, like one of the issues is I wanted to do the agricultural history of the community I live in. Well, get somebody to do that. Well, there's nobody that like does that as a hobby. They study trains for fun, but nobody really wants to study the agricultural history of their community for fun. And then trying to put that in a larger context, when I went to local universities, the issue was they were doing it on a large scale, and people in my community don't really care about what happened all over. They want to know what happened in their little neck of the woods. Um, yeah, so, the, well, those are the two that all, and I echo your sentiment. It's hard as a small institution that I can even write using Chicago manual style for scholarly stuff I need to do, but then I'm expected to send out a press release using AP style, and then I'm expected to write a label using Beverly Sorrell, and I have a staff of 1.75 in addition to me. That's a lot when you have to basically um, translate material three different ways. Great. Thank you. You can just pass it right behind you. This kind of piggybacks on that. Is that Oftentimes, finding scholars who are interested and willing to do research on a specific title, a subject in the state and local history, you, oftentimes university professors are, are big in the bigger scheme of history, colonial, you know, revolutionary, civil war. You know, but, they, but when it gets down to local and state history, it's oftentimes hard to find a scholar who's willing to do that kind of research. Thank you. Was there one more over here? Did you? Right, right here, right over um, I, I work at a, a house that was owned uh, for 76 years by a Civil War general and his family. And we, the Minnesota Historical Society, it was the first house donated to the Minnesota Historical Society. We have huge binders. We have lots of scholarly works on it. But everybody in Hastings knows this house as the antique dealer's house. And so how, as site manager, do I say, last summer, before, before I was technically in charge, they decided to do Carol Simmons tours. And I'm saying it's really hard to interpret the house that was built by the Leducs from the antique dealer's point of view because he had nothing to do with the building of this house or, you know. And, and so from my point of view, it's like that there's that challenge for the historic sites to, if there's, a, if there's a history in the community with that house, where do you draw the line of saying, you know, no, well, I, I did. I said to them, we're not doing Carol Simmons tours anymore. But, but where do you draw that line between saying this is what is historically pertinent to the house, and this is what the scholar, you know, this is what the Minnesota Historical Society is saying is pertinent, and scholarly work on the house, and how do you say that to your community that wants you to interpret the house differently? Yeah, great. Okay, I, thank you for those questions. I think a lot of those are not all of them, but a lot of them are ideas that we bounce back and forth. So I think it might, almost all of them will be covered in what they say, and certainly we will try and get back to them after
third speaker, but we'll now start with the first speaker, Mary Rizzo. Those were some really great questions. Is that, is that audible? Can you hear me? Um, so those were some really great questions, and I, I think they touch on um, several things that I, I want to talk about. And I appreciate uh, John's introduction when, when he discussed the sort of spectrum of scholarship and knowledge, that there's a sort of academic end and a, a public history end, but they're all on a spectrum. And my career and path has included both the academic and um, the public history. And um, as uh, John mentioned, I, I had been um, at the New Jersey Council for the Humanities, but before that I worked at several small historic sites. Um, and so I really feel like I do have a sense of the challenges that are facing people who work at small museums and historical organizations. Um, and one thing that I firmly believe is that for a history organization uh, to be a good, strong history organization, it has to be doubly strong. Um, you know, we have to have really well-run nonprofit organizations that also do really extraordinarily good um, historical scholarship and work. So, you know, we all have a double sort of mandate about what we need to do to make our organizations successful. So about a year ago, I arrived at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Center for the Humanities um, at Rutgers Camden, and I really wanted to find a way to connect scholars and people who are working at small historical organizations. And um, lucky for me, March had already gotten a small grant from the 1772 Foundation for a, a project that was sort of undetermined what it would look like, but they had an interest in the similar topic. So what I proposed to them and what we ended up um, creating was something that, that I called Public History Boot Camp. Um, and our first topic was uh, new views on immigration and diversity for small history organizations. We've done a couple more boot camps since then, but they're more skill-based. Um, so I'm not really going to talk about those so much. But uh, we'll talk about this first one that we ran. And what I um, would like to just sort of lay out is some of the lessons that we learned from this project. And I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on this boot camp model and to see if it is a, a viable model for creating the kinds of connections that I think we all want to see because we're all in this room together. So the goals for our public history boot camp were four. We wanted to connect public history practitioners with um, scholarship and scholars, especially those who could serve as future resources. So we didn't really want a one-and-done kind of like hit-and-run sort of, of way. We, would, we really wanted to see relationships begin to be created that could persist over time. Um, we wanted to expose our attendees to new historical scholarship and skills-based training. One thing that I think is really important to recognize is that for folks who are working at historic sites and organizations like you, um, justifying a going to a workshop can be much easier if you're saying you're getting specific skills to come out of it as well. Um, uh, third, we wanted to utilize case studies and models to discuss the process of interpreting scholarly content. And then finally, we really wanted to connect public history practitioners with each other. And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about this later, but even in a state as small as New Jersey, our historic sites do not speak to each other very often. They don't necessarily even like know the site that's a couple of miles away. So connecting people to each other and creating a network was really important too. So the model that we, we created is that March, the organization I work for, is the sort of centerpiece, the linchpin that connects the scholars with the public history practitioners. So we recruited the scholars to be speakers. We recruited the public history practitioners from the greater Philadelphia region. Um, and we organized this boot camp around three big 
topic areas under the really large umbrella of new scholarship on immigration. And I'll just say really quickly that we chose immigration as our topic for very obvious reasons, I'm sure, to all of you. I mean, our communities are changing demographically incredibly quickly. And I would say, generally speaking, our historic organizations are not changing as quickly. So we really need to figure out ways that we can connect with these new, these new communities, right? Because that's, that's our goal. And obviously, for self-interest, we want to continue to be relevant into the future. Um, so, we had, uh, so we recruited three people to be speakers for the event. So we had a scholar of immigration who began the day by talking about uh, an overview of trends in historical immigration to our region. Then we had another university-based scholar who talked about research methods for doing immigration research. And finally, we had a public historian who discussed a case study, a project that he had worked on specifically to sort of bring it all together. Um, in the end, we had 26 people, so we were over full. Actually, I wanted to cap it at 25, but you know how it goes. Um, and our attendees were as diverse from each other as we had like an urban art museum attend. We had small historical societies, and we had the Atlantic County, New Jersey judiciary, a couple people from the judiciary attend too because they were interested in doing an exhibit. So really diverse group, which was awesome. And I think in many ways we achieved our goal of teaching the attendees about immigration. And between the pre and post workshop survey, the attendees said that, they, that their knowledge had increased by a point on a five point scale. So that's pretty good. But there were definitely some hurdles in the process of saying, how do you take historical scholarship and interpret it into programming and exhibits? We didn't quite get as far in that process as I would have liked. Um, and I'll talk about why that is. So, and thinking back on this for today, I was like, what are the lessons that we learned by doing this boot camp? And I think that I'd say that there were four. And the first, and I was really glad that someone brought this up in the comments, or a couple people did, I think our first lesson to learn was keep it local, right? That the more um, you can have the content be about the local area, the better. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this, right? For people who are working at historic sites, Often, you know, your programming is about your local area, so that's good. But also, I think there's another reason. If you bring the content down to really being about the local, you equalize the playing field between the scholars and the practitioners, right? Because you guys are without question the experts on your local area, right? Scholars bring context that is very worthwhile. And so now you've created a situation in which you're both bringing something to the table. And I think it helps to equalize what can often be an imbalanced power relation. Now, one of the biggest challenges for me was actually finding somebody who knew anything about New Jersey immigration, new New Jersey immigration. Um, and so there's just not a lot of people out there working on that. So if you have any grad students that you know and they're looking for like a dissertation topic, like I have a really good recommendation because nobody's doing this research. So what I had to do was go to Philadelphia. And so I recruited Dominic Vidiello, who's a fantastic scholar of immigration at UPenn. And his scholarship is about Philadelphia, but he was able to bring in New Jersey information uh, into his presentation, and that was good. Uh, it wasn't ideal, but it was certainly um, better than you know, a broader view. So my second point is that um, you need to give them space for discussion, for talking, for networking. Um, you know how it is when you plan a program, you want to get everything in that you can possibly get in. And so I think I over jammed the day with stuff and didn't leave enough time and space for discussion and networking. So what was really interesting were on the evaluations, the attendees really liked the presentations. And I did a follow-up 
evaluation six months later. And even then, the attendees were like, we really like 88% of them were like, the best part was, were those scholarly presentations. But almost all of them then also commented and said, but we really wanted time to talk more. So as someone actually said on the evaluation, I gained much from seeing old colleagues as well as meeting new friends in the field. So networking is super important. And I think that um, even when we're talking about scholarly content and sort of thinking about knowledge that we have to remember that social interaction. Thirdly, I think it's important to create a situation in which it's clear that everyone is equal, right? Everybody has their expertise and we are all experts in the room. Um, so, you know, in preparing for the workshop, I really emphasize to our university-based scholars, like, these are not your students. Do you know what I mean? Like, you shouldn't just lecture to them. And also, they're going to challenge you. They're not going to be like your students and just sit there quietly and take notes. They're going to speak back to you. And, um, and they did. So one of our, um, our second speaker, who was talking about kind of methods of researching immigration, was talking about labor and immigration and gender. And he kept using that, that word, gender. And so a woman in the audience who worked at a historic site and was really interested in women's history kept pressing him. Like, why are you talking about gender? Why aren't you talking about women's history? And so it was a really interesting place where you could see a tension in the language. Um, and again, if we do this and again in the future, and I hope we do, I would have created more space and time for them to really have a discussion about that because that would have been a great exchange. Um, so it was a good moment to sort of realize um, the places where you know, we can have those really fruitful kind of teaching, teaching moments and, and that interaction. Um, what was probably the best part of the workshop for, for the three sites that were able to do this is we had a little extra grant money to do um, to give people a, consult, a consultation, like a half day of consultation with a public historian or scholar. So three sites were able to get that. And that was a real place where we saw everyone's expertise being utilized, right? It's like the scholars came in, talked to them one-on-one -on -one about a project, and that people loved who were able to, to, um, to do that. So the last thing I'm gonna say is like the absolute duh thing, um, but I think it's also, there's some counterintuitive parts to it, which is that time and money are in short supply, right? So like, yeah, of course, we all know time and money are in short supply. But, um, but I think this actually worked out in, in a sort of way I didn't expect. So when I first began conceptualizing this boot camp idea, I talked to a bunch of people I knew, and they were like, this is a great idea. No one is gonna, who works at a small historic site is gonna take a day out of their work life and come to Camden, New Jersey for this. It's just not gonna happen. And they were wrong, right? People really wanted to come. Now we were lucky because with this small grant we were able to give people a travel stipend, but it was like $50. And on our anonymous evaluation surveys, literally no one cited that travel stipend as a reason why they attended. So I think they were really drawn by this opportunity to connect with scholars and to have some time to talk to them. Um, and to interact with their peers. I really think that that's key. So the, but the second part that really surprised me was I was like, great, we're having this great conversation and there's not enough time this day to talk about all this stuff. Let's extend this conversation by doing some stuff electronically. Let's have a Google Hangout. Let's do a webinar. Let's do a Skype call, whatever. Whatever model works for you guys, I'm willing to like figure out how to make it happen. And nobody was interested in that. Nobody. And so I thought about why. And I think, you know, on one hand, it's possible that it was because it was a somewhat older crowd of people who attended and maybe they weren't as comfortable with that method of communication. But I don't think that was it, actually. I think in the end, they felt like if they had to sit at their desk and look at their computer, it was just going to be one more task at the office. 
and that it was really the time and opportunity to take a, get away from the office, away from the site, to be in a different space, thinking with colleagues and scholars, that was what drew them to this uh, boot camp. So that was something that I really, um, I, th I think, was an important lesson learned. So, um, so I think I just want to wrap up by saying that I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting and important to bring scholars and public history practitioners together. I think there are challenges to doing so. Um, so it takes some work, but it's really, and so it's really important to make sure that we are meeting the needs of practitioners in this way. And the reality is that scholars there are interested. There are a lot of scholars out there who want to do this work. Um, and that we really need to um, create those spaces where these connections can happen. So I look forward to hearing your, your questions and thoughts about, about that. All right? Good afternoon, my name is Cassie Ward. I'm the Director of Public Programs at Long Branch Plantation. Uh, Long Branch is a historic house, museum, and farm that's located about um, an hour and 20 minutes uh, west of Washington, D.C., so it's in a very rural uh, Virginia community. And the site preserves a 200-year-old uh, plantation home and 400 acres of land. So about two years ago, uh, due to the declining interest in our site, um, and our visitation was down, the board of directors and the staff sat down to really uh, rethink and reimagine the interpretation of the site and the management of the site. So for the previous 20 years, uh, Long Branch had operated as your classic historic house museum. We had a once and done furniture tour that uh, focused on our last owner. Um, the owner, uh, Harry Isaacs, had purchased the property in the 1980s as his summer home. Um, he performed a massive renovation of the home, and then unfortunately and sadly, he was diagnosed with cancer and never actually got, he spent about three nights in the house. But before he passed away, he went on a worldwide shopping spree. He filled the house with all of these high-end antiques, and he set up a nonprofit foundation, um, generously set up a nonprofit foundation to keep the house open for the benefit of the community. However, uh, lost in the site's interpretation and tour were, was the preceding 200 years of history that had happened at Long Branch. It was originally a plantation that dated back to the 1790s. So in that tour, um, you lost all of the voices of the Nelson family who had owned the home for 140 years. You lost the stories of the um, up to 30 enslaved workers th that lived at the site and labored at the site. Um, you lost the voices of um, men of the household who died during the Civil War and you know all of the up to I think about 10 children that grew up in the house So you lost all of these great stories that you could really connect your visitors to So um, we needed to expand our historical interpretation to really become worthy and relevant in our uh, local community So how did we start to introduce all of this uh, new narrative and scholarship into the site because it's basically like a complete overhaul so first we made a plan. Uh, we made a new uh, five-year strategic plan that kind of set forth our, uh, the guidelines and our goals for the next five years, um, including our finances, our interpretation, and preservation. And that also includes our 400 acres of land and 70 horses. Um, so basically uh, what came out of this, out of the strategic plan was that we were going to begin to talk about the full 200 years of history at the site. Um, so then we uh, began to conduct extensive amounts of primary, secondary source research and also consulted with all of our local universities. We have a great local university, which really helps us with connecting with um, current trends in scholarship. 
And you know, we identified, uh, we went to our local historical society, online archives, the local university, and we identified you know, letters, broadside posters, oral histories, um, census records, slave schedules, and photographs. And so with all of this material in hand, we were able to establish our uh, main period of significance as the 1850s and 1860s, because at this point, you could see the very height of the plantation and when the plantation was at its lowest after the Civil War. And so while most of our programming and all of our new exhibits really focus on that main period of significance, um, we also made the decision, like I said, to tell the entire story. And so this really opens up our um, interpretive possibilities. And basically, you know, we can almost pull from any story in American history now and tell that through the lens of Long Branch. And so while a major, you know, a president or a major historical figure didn't live at our site, we're able, you know, common everyday people like you and I did, and so it really helps the visitor to connect to the, you know, regional, local, and national narratives by telling that story through the lens of Long Branch. And so now that we've expanded our understanding and interpretation of the site, we've basically thrown that into everything we're doing. So all of our exhibits, all of our web content, our blog posts, um, our, event, our special events, our programs, everything includes this new interpretation. And so in order, and obviously to do that amount of new interpretation, uh, it's financial, you know, it's a financial burden. So to do that, we constantly apply for grants and um, work with our community partners. And the more relevant, you know, your site becomes, the more grants you're going to be able to um, apply for. And so, in order to literally make space for this interpretation, we had to do a bit of house cleaning at our house museum. And so, as beautifully appointed as Long Branch was by Mr. Isaacs. Um, this tour only, that furniture tour, only represented a very narrow slice of the history. So with the approval of our board of trustees, uh, we put up for auction furnishings that were not tied to the deep history of the site. And through this house cleaning, we were able to create two multi-use um, exhibit gallery wings, um, which we've we build all of our exhibits so that they're collapsible and we can then use that space for other um, events and functions. We were able to create an education programming room and then six period spaces. So you come to the historic house and you can still experience um, much of the historic quality, but then you also have some spaces that have been adapted for modern use. Um, while the decision to auction the furnishings was obviously a very difficult one, the new use of the space has really expanded um, the amount and variety of programs that we're able to offer. And you know, I'll have visitors all the time that say, oh, I, I haven't been here for 15 years, or I, I was here once 10 years ago. It's because with that once and done furniture tour, they, they didn't really have any reason to come back. But now through all of the programs and events that we offer, I will see visitors you know, five, 10 times a year, which is great. You know, and they used to only be coming one, once, once a year or once every five to 10 years. So um, through this entire process, we've learned the importance of transparency and embracing challenge. So um, changing the interpretation of this plantation definitely raised a few eyebrows. Um, in order to be completely open about the process, we hold, held a lot of community open houses. We talked to uh, leading community members, and we regularly um, updated our local newspaper. So we're in a very local area, so it's pretty easy to get news articles. I know if you're in a city, it's probably a little harder. But by doing that, you know, there was a constant dialogue between what we were trying to accomplish at the site, what the university is helping us to do, and, and with the community. So some of the major uh, challenges we've 
faced include um, our decision to sell a lot of the furnishings, um, adding slavery to the discussion at the plantation, and changing our name from, it used to be historic Long Branch, to its 18th and 19th century name of Long Branch Plantation. The word plantation um, caused quite a stir in our local community because of what it represents. Um, and while it was often difficult to hear these challenges, it was important for us to listen and be flexible and of these different points of view because, again, your local community, especially for Historic House Museum, is really your main visitor base. So, you know, sometimes we, we may have had to take it back just a little bit until, you know, gradually we think that the community will be even more ready for more history and more challenging topics. So, um, let's see here. In response to the challenge of our introduction of slavery into the site, I often think that, you know, if we don't discuss these important topics in American history, you know, who will? Um, our, like I was saying, our main visitor base is our local community, and so while it's often difficult to talk about these controversial topics in history, um, what better place than in a historic house museum? And so I'd like to leave you with one really positive story um, that I was able to, that I've experienced from adding all of this new scholarship to the site. And um, I know you talked about time before. We act, this, all of this has happened in basically two years, which is pretty fast for a museum. Um, but so basic, let's see, last winter, the Long Branch received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to participate in their Created Equal series. And that series, um, they basically, they provided us with movies that talked about um, the civil rights movement from abolitionism to today. And so I would screen the movie and then host a guided discussion. And so during one screening, I had many members from our local um, NAACP join us. And so after the program, the president pulled me aside and she said, you know, I really didn't want to come here today because of what a plantation represents, and I really just thought you wanted federal money. That's why you were doing it. And she said, however, now that I've, you know, experienced the, the tour, the exhibits, and your program, you know, we fully, the NAACP fully supports you, and please let us know if we can volunteer or help you in any way. And so that, that felt really wonderful to have um, another organization's support in the community. And for me, that gave me what I like to call history happy chills. So, um, you know, although expanding your scholarship will be difficult and it can be met with great challenges, the rewards are so much sweeter and you'll, you know, you'll leave work feeling as though you've really made a difference and that you are trying to accurately portray historical themes um, that make up our nation. And so I'm not going to lie, it has been a lot of work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, literally. I've been to the doctor a lot and hurt all the time, falling and um, stressed out. But, um, you know, you're going to ruffle some feathers in the process, but I think it's really important and it's necessary. And even through all the trials and tribulations that I've experienced in my two years there, I would, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat at another site and, and continue to do it at Long Branch. So, okay, that's it. Hi, everybody. I'm Kathy Stanton. Um, and I'm going to come at this from a question of um, how do you access current new scholarship that's still very much in flux, which actually may be all new scholarship. That's kind of the nature of the beast, that it, it's still emerging. It's kind of hard to see the outlines of it, and which intersects with um, 
different and maybe sometimes contradictory and sometimes politicized um, goals, real-life projects and goals, um, which again may characterize any good scholarship is probably going to be you know, pushing some of those discussions. So, And my perspective here is as a, um, a publicly engaged scholar who has worked with mostly national park sites. Um, I'm an anthropologist and I've been contracted to do a number of these, uh, they're called ethnographic studies, to provide material that will support new or um, updated stories about particular groups of people that have a associations with national parks. Um, so I'm, my job is to somehow supply this, you know, magically this, this new, new scholarship. So I, I've needed to think about how can you bring together these, these two realms that we've, they we're all talking about here. Um, and for this discussion, I wanted to particularly to reference, since this is part of a, a kind of a longer exploration on my part, um, but the study of um, food and farming history, so agricultural history. And I, I just, I'm, I'm zeroing in on that, um, not just because it fascinates me personally, but because I think it's a really good case study for exactly this question of how we can can sort of bring together this swirling realm of, of scholarship, um, which often has really important um, not not answers, but you know Im important implications for thinking through um, in the real world, you know, food politics of today. That that's just a a question that a lot of audiences are concerned with, a lot of us are probably concerned with, and it's a good point in for uh, for talking about um, lots of big big questions and um, a lot of the things that people I think look to the past for some sense of you know understanding. So. Um, so this, um, the particular study that I just want to mention briefly is um, one that was commissioned by um, the uh, Martin Van Buren National Historic Site in Kinderhook, New York, uh, which um, people know Martin Van Buren was the, the eighth president, uh, one-term president. When he lost his bid for re-election, he went back home to his hometown of Kinderhook to become essentially a gentleman farmer. And the National Park had always had his mansion and his the lawn around the mansion, you know, kind of the, the great, great man's house, um, but it had recently expanded its boundaries to include his 225-acre working farm, which was a really a, an important part of how Van Buren was expressing what it meant to be a northern free-soil farmer in the antebellum years. So, you know, hugely political. Um, the park didn't actually own the farm. The farm was being farmed by a very large um, community-supported agriculture farm, so kind of, you know, alternative, you know, new, new farm movement kind of uh, farm. And so the park was trying to figure out how do we locate ourselves within essentially this agricultural economy, which is, is real and is happening now, as well as seeing ourselves in, in terms of the history. So that was my job to try to help them um, move towards situating themselves in that way. And it just made it so clear that there are no neat answers to be found from scholarship per se. Like they, I think especially at the beginning, they were kind of looking for a magic bullet where they, they just wanted a study that would tell them that it was really good because these farmers were farming exactly the way Martin Van Buren did, and so this was, this was fine, you know. And in fact, they weren't. The new farmers were farming in some ways that were like Van Buren's, which was really fascinating. You know, they were doing direct marketing and sort of small-scale economy, but they were using tractors and they were using black mulch row covers and, you know, kind of things that didn't look right. Um, so I think initially they really wanted a study that would tell them why this contemporary farm was compatible with their interpretation, and it just didn't, it didn't quite line up. Um, so um, I found that both new and old scholarship kind of helped me to get a handle on this, but neither of them really kind of provided me with a kind of a neat answer either. And I, somebody mentioned the, you know, even keeping up with old literature is difficult, keeping up with new literature is, is very challenging, and with 
the history of agriculture particularly, I found people have, I think it's just very hard to see farming. It's always been very hard to, to kind of see what farming even is. It's so overlaid with, you know, kind of hopes and ideologies and, and um, political positions. It always has been. And so the scholarship kind of reflects this. Um, so, and as I say, it's, it, this isn't just farming scholarship, but it, it helped me to sort of think through, you know, what, what do we do with that? All these sort of ragged edges of a, of a scholarly field that contain treasures. There were, you know, things that really helped me to see more clearly um, why agriculture is so complicated and, and why um, historic sites that preserve agriculture have become kind of enclaved and separated from the real agricultural economy. It's like that's a really fascinating history in itself. Um, it helped to clarify that for me, but there was nothing neat that I could kind of package and give to back to the park. Um, it's, it's never neat except in hindsight when you actually go to graduate school and you, there are sort of things that look like schools of thought and you're supposed to, you know, kind of identify what those are. But that's hindsight. You know, it's, it's much easier to do that after the fact. Um, scholarship as it's happening is always this process of, you know, kind of um, coming in and out of focus and negotiating even what questions we're going to ask. Um, so the thing is, you know, how can a, a working historic site, and especially a small, understaffed, you know, working historic site, possibly engage with that? Um, and that's actually true even of, you know, like this national park was, I would say, a small, understaffed site, even though it was also a national park site. Um, so my answer, insofar as I've got an answer in this case, is um, really, I think, to think about rooting the inquiry, uh, you know, whatever it is that you want to know about and that you want to draw on and you sort of tap into scholarship for in, in some kind of broader internal vision at the site of, of whatever role you hope that historic site might play in you know, civic dialogues, particularly around whatever topic. So in this case, it was you know, around farming, around um, economy, and things connecting to environment. I think, you know, the park had a sense that, they, that this food, food movement stuff was, was really important in terms of people's concern about economy and environment and climate change and those, those kind of scary topics, but um, they, they were just leery of kind of approaching that too directly. So a lot of what I did as a scholar was just to try to help them foreground that a little bit more and sort of say, yeah, it really does connect. It's really important. It's a really long strands in American history, and um, but they needed ultimately to have kind of the courage to talk about that and to say how they saw themselves in their community helping to open up those questions. Um, so that's not it was something that I, I tried to help them with, but it ultimately had to come from, from the site. Um, so I would say my, my first you know, kind of conclusion or a, a piece of advice about this would be to, to connect a search for new scholarship with discussions at your own site or agency about changes that you're hoping to make or, or roles that you're hoping to play and you know, kind of mission-driven goals to, to let it, to ground it there rather than, oh, there's some stuff out there we should go out and get <laughs> um, because it's not there in a kind of a neat box ever to be gotten. But it's there to be engaged with if if you're coming at it from a perspective of you know asking good questions about what it, what it is you want your your um, site to do and be clear about you know why you're why you're trying to make those and I think scholars will help you if you can articulate that clearly I think scholars will be glad to help you make that case if you're making a compelling case like we we think we should be talking about the history of slavery you know at this site with this long history um, I think scholars if you if you find the right scholars um, will really be happy to help you with that but they can't come and provide that kind of mission or, or vision to, to a site. Um, 
you have to pick the right scholar. We were talking about like what what is the right scholar, and we talked about finding you know finding a good generalist, somebody who can think kind of broadly and generally, may actually be better than finding the right specialist. Sometimes a specialist can be fairly narrow, fo narrowly focused. Um, a good generalist may lead you to a good specialist. Um, you might want to engage with both of them. You might want both those those levels. But I think seeing all of that is part of this longer process that Mary was talking about of relationship building rather than just kind of a one-off, you know, go in and extract the knowledge and come out. Um, and, and to find people that have some understanding or some interest in, you know, how historic sites and museums work. Um, example that I think of is uh, in Medford, Massachusetts, near where I, I teach at Tufts University, um, the Royal House, which was, again, a great white man uh, site with a nice lawn around it, but owned, still owns the only extant slave quarters in the Northeast um, and so they did a, a process of rethinking um, not just what that site was, but what the Medford Historical Society was that, that owns the site. And it was really part and parcel of you know, some soul searching on the, on the part of that organization, connected with some scholars at, at my institution who were very interested in memory and museums and, and, and got in there and engaged for a number of years and, and really kind of all together helped to reframe that, um, that interpretation. But I think the scholarship is really just one... Um, should be just one piece of an overall project of, um, of you know, whatever it is that's driving your, your search for new scholarship, to think about it that way. And the second is, I think, um, not to be afraid to acknowledge that there are gaps or that these are ongoing processes. And Cassie mentioned community meetings, you know, to be, to, to be transparent. And I think that's part of a trend in a lot of ways in public history. Um, we just had a great series that Mary commissioned on the um, History at Work blog. Um, it was called Pulling Back the Curtain, which was keying off our uh, presidential address from our last conference where Bob Wyneth said, you know, it's just time to let more people into what the historic process is, the process of thinking about history. Um, and I think people are fascinated by that, kind of to see history in the works. So really to frame this as um, not a transfer of knowledge, you know, or again, a sort of finished product, but a, sh a process of shared inquiry. We talk about shared authority, but this is more shared inquiry, sort of you know, framing it as something that we are doing together and that we're coming into from different places. And I just see that as a really crucial role for public historians and museum interpreters to play. We don't have to have the, the finished package, but I, th I think we're good at framing questions and thinking about how to, how to communicate those. So, and especially in relation to these urgent issues. So um, I, I think it's, it, we're just in a time when it's, it's important to really um, have as many people th asking good questions about the past and you know, how, we, how we got to where we are as, as possible. And that if we can see ourselves as kind of modeling that, I, th I think that's a really um, a great function we can fulfill. So to really to see our historic sites and these, these, these platforms as kind of points of intersection for, um, for public concerns, for uh, new scholarship, for you know, bringing scholars in, um, and then these values of stewardship and education that come out of more public history and, and museum fields. Um, I think that may address the, you know how to c connect the micro and the macro in a lot of ways. You know you're, you're you're grounding it in a local story, but then opening to these bigger concerns. Um, and something that occurred to me, this is the great thing about going last, is you you, know, <laughs> you get to think of all these things as other people are talking. But I was thinking as as um, 
as Mary was talking again, and the, the finding kind of intermediaries or other kind of platforms. So something like March, the you know the Humanities Council. I think public history programs often, if there is a strong one near you, that that that's a good um, often kind of intermediary ground that you know places that might be interested in serving as these um, meeting places. So not just like the little historic site over here and the the world of the academy over there, but but these various sort of points along a, a line that um, that may create these networks which will strengthen everybody, I think, in, in the long run. Certainly, um, universities know they should be you know, reaching out beyond the, the ivory tower, but um, small historic sites also benefit from um, not just from sort of sociability and you know, sense of networking, but I think it, it, that then you're part of a larger story. You know, then you're, that, that's where you're sort of connecting to that larger context without everybody having to, to do that, but if you see yourself as part of a, like a regional story. Um, and then just most important, I think, just seeing our own work um, in, in that kind of process as part of a larger effort for understanding and addressing these really the compelling social and environmental kinds of questions that um, people are concerned about. So establishing our, a place for ourselves in all of that. Thanks. Um, so uh, we've heard several ideas there for actually tapping into new scholarship. I wanted to throw out just a couple more that had occurred to me uh, listening to them, but also uh, before. Um, I was talking to a couple colleagues who are here, um, one of whom's in a public history program, works with a dozen master's thesis students every year, and those theses pile up, and, and that's another form of unpublished scholarship that I think a lot of people don't think about turning to. Uh, Mary mentioned that no one's working on New Jersey immigration history, well, new immigration, but you know, there is a lot of, uh, there's PhD theses, dissertations, there's master's theses out there, and those intermediaries, um, so if you, um, you know, I'm, we're making a lot of assumptions here about what you all know and don't know, um, so I apologize for that. Uh, we'll, we'll hear from you hopefully in a, in a few seconds here. Um, but, um, you know, I, so I don't know what your experience is and, and if, it's, if it would ever have been useful or if you have tried um, going to a master's program or, any university professor and try and find that generalist or those specialists who can help you. But oftentimes, my, my sense is that, um, you know, some people are nice, some people are mean. Um, you'll find someone, catch them on the right day. Wasn't that profound? Uh, wow. You catch people on the right day and, um, you know, there are always students looking for topics to research. Uh, yes, it is sort of a free form of labor that, labor that can be exploited, but there are people looking for topics to research. They don't necessarily have to even be in your community. They could be on the other side of the country. I know when I was in graduate school, I was not smart enough to ask people for what work needed to be done. Instead, I invented a topic, which turned out well, I guess, but um, why? You know, I could have, if I had actually gone out and talked to people in uh, museums and historical societies in my own state, that would have been a lot easier and probably a lot more rewarding. Um, so, you know, we've heard about networks, creating networks, creating relationships. Um, I promised a friend here at the conference that I would tout this because it relates. Um, this is the national, this is not this, this is a brochure for the National Collaborative of Women's Historic Sites. And it's a collaborative of public historians, of scholars, people in universities, people at women's history sites, um, you know, uh, uh, house museums, museums, and 
some of the research that's being done for these sites is being done by other scholars and students who are in this collaborative or connected to this collaborative. So I mean that's another way is around a particular thematic, particular theme or topic, say immigration, a group of sites could build a network and be drawing in scholars and scholarship into that network. Um, so anyway, those are just ideas off the top of my head. I want to hear from you. Here, pass it back. <laughs> so are there questions or ideas or things where we overstep the line and you want to challenge us? Um, or specific examples of where you've tried to do this and it went well? Yes. Um, I've had a lot of coffee, so I've got a lot of questions. But I'll just hold it to one um, at this point. Um, what did the scholars think? I mean, this has been about helping local his, poor benighted local historians at their, well, I, I jest, but helping local historians. But why did scholars, did they get service credit? Did this help them forward their careers? So I, I will say that, I mean, obviously, um, you know, every scholar is different, right? In our case, uh, you know, we paid our scholars to participate in the boot camp. But to be totally honest, we didn't pay them very much. I, I think that there are many scholars out there who want, who really want to extend their work beyond the university into, you know, the more sort of public intellectual uh, realm or the public sphere. Um, having worked at the Humanities Council where we really were a go-between between scholars and the public, you know, I can say that with uh, quite a bit of, of confidence. So I think it is a matter of, of finding those right people. Now certainly some of those people have great um, desire to do this, but they don't know how to do this work, and, and that is something to also consider. Just because someone wants to connect with the public, they may not have the skill set to be able to translate their very highly specialized research into something that can be useful for the public. But I think there can also be a training process there that is also um, a way to potentially get more collaborative partners in. So for example, the New York Humanities Council, I know, is doing work with scholars in training them how to talk to the public. Um, so you know, I think that there are organizations uh, and intermediaries who can help with that. Um, I would add to that that uh, if we're talking about college and university professors, that they there are different stages in their career where at sometimes they are going to be more outward looking. At other times, if they don't have tenure yet, they can't afford necessarily to. Uh, even at universities that have public history programs, uh, if you don't have tenure yet, you have to be working on that book, and that book is probably about some far-off place, not somewhere local. Um, so you, you have to take that into account. Um, and then, uh, and I think talk, looking for intermediaries, I think human state humanities councils obviously can be a great way to do that. Public history programs, museum studies programs at colleges and universities, um, there will be faculty there um, who may not be able to help you directly, but put you in touch with a colleague somewhere else who can do that. Um, yeah, that's all I was going to add. What, did you have more questions? You need the microphone here. Go ahead. Put him. Um, so here's just a, another question. Um, just thinking about, you know, we do a lot of teacher training, and 
thinking about connecting teachers to the newest scholarship and even high school students. Um, I say this because I'm a PhD student who works at a historic site and in an education department. And recently, I proposed a program of, oh, well, let's do a Google Hangout with latest scholarship on the Lincoln assassination. Luckily, one of the scholars himself said, yeah, I don't know. That's how we'd really pitch it to high school students. But, you know, and, and I was like, yes, I've been in a PhD program way too long. But, um, yeah, but thinking about that, too, that, you know, hey, you know, what, you know, new perspectives, just, you know, what are some thoughts on, you know, ways to bring new scholarship to teachers and even you know, students through historic sites? You know, that's a very big question. But. I'll just jump in to say two spe specific things. One, um, actually, uh, the first day of the conference here, I was chatting with someone who's at a workshop with me, and I was telling him the topic of our panel, and I was like, oh, so what do, what do you think about that, you know, connecting scholars and historic sites? And he worked at a historic site. And he said that he thought the best example he'd ever seen were teaching American history grants as, like, a way to connect scholars and, and historic sites because they were often... Um, had a deep connection with historic sites in a local area. Um, now, of course, those are no more. So that is the sort of sad part of it. But I think it's interesting to think of teaching American history as a model for that, where it was the federal government paying for teacher two-week teacher workshops, I think. And they would like bring teachers in from all over who applied for the program. Very intensive, scholar-led, but deeply connected historic sites. $300,000 to a million dollars a so not cheap. Right. And that just strikes me as a, a question that the larger category is, you know, back to time and money, which is, is always in short supply. It's amazing how much you can do if somebody gives you a million dollars. It's much easier to do this. But also then all these various disciplinary and, and calendar and, and professional kinds of constraints. And I know with teachers that they've got to deal with, you know, curriculum standards and, and standardized testing and certain, you know, academic calendars, and actually, which is also true of scholars. It's like, don't approach a scholar in April. It's a really bad time. You know, just to, to kind of be aware of the, the, the different cycles and, and different pressures that people face. And I think, I, I would think that question to me leads to the larger point that whenever we're trying to make these kind of partnerships, it kind of behooves us to educate ourselves and then, and also to educate, you know, each other, potential partners about those constraints. So it might be worth thinking, like, if you do want to approach a scholar, to, to have a, like, a one-page handout that says, here's how big our budget is. <laughs> here's how our 1.75 staff members, you know, just really, in reality, here's, here's, like, what's realistic for us, just to have that with the ask, you know, not to, um, not to sort of go in cold, but to, to do that piece of education and bridge building. So. Um, kind of to go back to your question about connect, why would the scholar, you know, want to connect, and then also about the teachers. I think, like you brought up before, about having kind of a specific project in mind or a specific idea in mind. I think that will help because you can kind of start small, develop those relationships with a small project that is feasible for everybody involved. You know, have have one, a, a high school teacher and maybe a handful of high school students that you have a project that you work on for you know either the first semester of the year or the second semester and then same thing with um, the scholars and I think that fostering those relationships on a small level then it will help it'll be easier for later on and as I walk the microphone over to this side of the room so for his question uh, it just occurred to me that we keep we keep defining scholar sort of in the academy, but we all know that the creators of scholarship 
work in a lot of different places. I think it, an advantage of working with scholars in the academy is that there are, there, when you find the right time to approach the dangerous animal, <laughs> there are rewards for, there can be rewards for doing this kind of work and there can be time and they already have a job and support. If you're trying to find work with a scholar who's a private consultant or who works for the federal government or is independent, um, you know, uh, works at a historical society, you know, some expert on the Civil War that you want to connect with, they may have less ability and, and time to work with you than someone in the university. Did you still have your question? I do. Well, John, you were just talking about untenured faculty and they are working on that book about some far out place. Is that indicative of a certain attitude of disrespect for those things that are local? Probably local someplace else. <laughs> I like that. All local someplace else. No. I just wonder, I, I, I work at, and I've written 120 articles about very local things. And people there like it, but it is a certain uh, disconnect between what I'm doing and scholars. But you don't get the microphone, but <laughs> we only agree with yeah. you. Um, and I, I thought of this when somebody mentioned earlier, you know, sort of the assumption that scholars somehow are doing big context, you know, kind of the big story and that that's not local. But I, I really think that a lot of the, the interesting good news scholarship is actually very often based on local story. I mean, it's what historians do. They're not telling big, vague stories. They're, they're grounding them somewhere and, you know, mm -hmm. Even if it's, it's a civil war, it's talking about a, a specific regiment or a, sp a specific group of people. You know, the, the sources kind of keep us local in that way. So I think I would just question that a little bit. I think there are people that are writing kind of, you know, grand tour books, but um, I think there's a lot of good new scholarship that is um, it's about local places, or, or it may be about, you know, certain ways of approaching local places, you know, way, ways of thinking about local stories that, uh, it, and it may be almost a method or an approach that's as useful as anything else. You know, how, so, you know, here's a way of rethinking this kind of farming or plantation setting, but maybe we can think about using that approach as well as the data. I'll just add one quick thing to that, which is to say, I think, um, is there's a process of kind of, I think, sometimes sifting historical scholarship. So, for example, you know, I, I'm trained in American studies as a cultural historian, but, you know, I read things in different disciplines. So, like, let's say I read something in political science because I'm looking for very specific information about a, a particular topic. Now, the particular topic that I'm interested in may not actually be of interest to the person who's writing that article. They may be interested in a broad theoretical um, idea, but, you know, it's sifting through what they've given me to find the pieces that are interesting to me. So I think that there is that, that possibility of finding that kinds of, those kinds of information that might be more useful. Good. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Coffee and then the gentleman in the back. With the Sorry. Um, I'm interested, you know, you say in the space of two years you changed the interpretation of your site. Um, how did the how did you get the board on board with that? Kind of, oh, sorry. They kind of came to the staff. They were ready to make a change. Okay. So ba it basically, I think it was timing because you probably you couldn't force a board to make that kind of decision. Okay. And um, like I said, there was declining visitation and interest in our site, so that was a big impetus to say, okay, what what do we need to do? How that can we change? That threat sort of said, 
we got to do something. Well, and we had became, um, we were known for a hot air balloon and wine festival that was held once a year. And that, so the history was not at all, you know, a part of the house. And they said, well, we've been charged with taking care of this historic site. You know, let's get back to the history. And by becoming a, um, you know, a valuable cultural asset in the community um, and really offering worthy programs, that's what's going to help you be around for the next 50 to 100 years and not offering and yes offering a wine festival now and again that's going to help get new audiences as well but in the in the long term it's going to be you know what what valuable uh, material and information are you offering the community how i'll just just a quick follow-up and then i'm done um so how does a site begin to incorporate new scholarship or just new but not be at the at the precipice of of you know declining visitation and and on a downhill slope I, that's that's a question for everybody i'm um i mean it's been a it's been a total struggle and you know through all of our new programs events um you know we have we have mixed response sometimes it goes over really well and sometimes they say you know you missed the mark on that and um so it's just constantly trying new things and as as i said before we basically through through all of this new interpretation into everything we're doing so that it's all consistent. And in the handout, I talk about, um, you know, the National Park Service, for example, in terms of their branding and in terms of um, even the brochures that we hand out. We try to make sure that everything from our website to the brochures that we hand out to the way we talk about the organization is in that it's consistent and that it's, you know, a rock-solid foundation of what we're trying to do and that I think in the long run will help. And I think this is where, for me, this connects with, um, I mean, most historic organizations have a, a somewhat similar mission to do with stewardship and education. You know, that's the, the values of the field, right? So it, to me, this is a way to, um, to kind of return and re reroute in those. And I think especially when people are feeling, you know, beleaguered and stressed for time and money and you know, often really threatened in, in this economic climate that there's this tendency to sort of chase after anything that will bring in revenue and, that, you know, that we're going to just be nothing but weddings, you know, <laughs> and that, that that absorbs a lot of time and, and gets us in some ways farther and farther away from the, those core missions. And I think this is, a, this is a way to come back to that and to feel really good about it and to articulate really clearly why these sites actually matter. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so this is sort of a general comment. I am a, uh, I'm a member of a board of directors in a small local historical society in Chicago in Rogers Park. I am also a PhD student in a public history program at Loyola University Chicago. Um, and this is sort of a general idea of, of how I became involved with this board of directors. They simply, this, this group, um, Rogers Park Westridge Historical Society, only has an operating budget of about $40,000. And they were just trying to get people to come into their historical society and give talks about history. Anything, really. <laughs> so long as you could be someone giving some sort of new ideas. And they started inviting people from Loyola to invite the, to, to give presentations about what they were doing. Um, and in this process, I went and gave a couple presentations, sort of my friends, all of whom were doing all sorts of scholarship, not really sharing it with anyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just thankful for the opportunity. And what really blossomed out of that is a really, really fantastic partnership between um, the historical society and the graduate students, not even the faculty, mm -hmm. to the point where they get about 20 graduate students donating time, donating scholarship, donating their energy to reinvigorating the historical society and also bringing their scholarship to, um, to their programs and helping to invent things. And so a lot of this comes back to uh, what was being said is it shouldn't be a, a one-off kind of a thing. Establishing that kind of relationship with, with uh, 
with scholars, with graduate students makes a big difference in, in just them feeling like having you on the radar. Um, and so they can say, so what literally happened is two years ago we said, hey, we would like to become more engaged in the, in the, uh, in the, the community, and we don't really get enough of these opportunities as graduate students. And so Rogers Park Westridge Historical Society was at the top of the uh, the top of the list, and we went there, and they were very they were very happy to have us. And it helped that they made three of us into members of their board of directors, so we stuck around for a real long time. Um, anyway, uh, that's just kind of a general comment for you. While the mic's going over there, let me just ask you if you would fill out the pink evaluation form if you get a chance. Thanks. I mean, the last few minutes here, we've got about four more minutes. Forgive me if this is naive, but it seems to me a lot of the good scholarship in local social history lately has come out of uh, expanding analysis of some document in some small historical society collection that is not on the radar. So instead of making the ask to scholars, more like making an offer to scholars, especially those with graduate departments, and like you said, people looking for something meaningful to research without having to get a grant to study in Wyoming if you're from Florida or wherever. So, That's a great point. Any more questions, comments, closing thoughts? Closing thoughts, anyone? <laughs> why, don't, why don't you do that? Okay. I was just going to say, I'm also on the NCPH board with um, a few of the folks up there, and I'm a consulting historian. I think consulting historians are great um, for providing new scholarship. You can connect with us at NCPH Consultants. We can try to find you a scholar in your local area. NCPH could try to find you one. There are projects that are highlighted on History at Work. You could just do keyword searches and see and just connect, or in LinkedIn often have great discussions that way. And I, I would just add, add that, John, I'm glad you started this conversation by saying the def definition of scholarship is this moving scale. Because I would just like to remind people that some really interesting scholarship is being done in the exhibits and programs areas of historical societies. Our challenge is that we're not publishing. And so we don't see ourselves with that same sort of... Um, you know, bibliography list that a, a traditional academic scholar might have, but I know that if the word gets out about your exhibit and your program, and you've done a lot of really original research to develop that, that a lot of times scholars will get word of that and, and come back to you asking to sort of tap into that research. So when we talked a little bit about power dynamic, I think that's a really um, interesting question because a lot of times, you know, I have, I have my scholars, my core group of scholars that are on my advisory committees for everything, but there have been occasions where I've done research in an area that they haven't yet done, right. and so I can be a resource to them as well. It's interesting, we've just um, created a position at our organization that is, I'm gonna butcher it, but it's some sort of like a Wikipedia and mm -hmm. editor or something, mm -hmm. and the challenge that we're facing there is in order to put the research material into articles on Wikipedia, they have to have a published source to cite. So as I'm developing exhibit text or research or interpretive guides for our exhibits, I also have to publish some sort of a scholarly article that I can then turn around and cite in order to get my research online. And it's this like weird chicken and egg situation. Um, but I think that all comes back to the basic point, which is that we are creating scholarship with social media and online um, resources exponentially increasing every day. I think the value of different sort of published sources 
expands. Um, so, so that power dynamic switch and where we are as um, exhibit developers and program developers sit on that on that line is shifting, mm -hmm. and I think that's good. Uh, and I would be really remiss as co-editor of The Public Historian if I did not say that for those of you who are doing this research, this original research, and, and telling new stories and producing knowledge that The Public Historian as an academic journal is very interested in um, getting your stories into the journal. Um, and we are we publish long form, you know, very scholarly essays, but we also do reports from the field that are designed to be much more amenable to the realities of the work that that you all do. So if you do have ideas and are interested in talking to me uh, more about that, please come, come grab me after the session or anytime during the rest of the conference. Or if they have ideas for new forms of yes, articles that, right. I don't know what that is. A Wikipedia <laughs> journal <laughs> exhibit thing. Okay. Um, I think we'll end there. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking our panelists.